Welcome everyone to Parsha Talk, Dutchess County's best Torah conversation. I am Rabbi Barry Chesler, and with me today is Dr. Allison Joseph, editor at the Posen Library of Jewish Culture and Civilization, and Rabbi Esther Reed, Senior Associate Director at Rutgers University Hillel. Whether you are listening on 102.3 FM, Kol Ramah, or on the web, www.kolramah.org, we welcome one and all. Our Parsha this week is Parsha Tavarim. We're beginning a new book of the Torah. Last week we finished Sefer B'midbar, the Book of Numbers. I think we could agree that was a high note. <laughs> and now this week, the week of Tisha B'Av, almost, we begin Devarim, something of a downer perhaps. The first verse is Ela HaDevarim, Asher Diber Moshe El Kol Yisrael Be'ever HaYerdein, Bamidbar Barava Molsuf, Bain Paran, Bain Tofel, Balaban, Vachatserot, Vadizahav. These are the words that Moses spoke to Israel somewhere east of the Jordan River. And Rashi suggests that the places that are named that rabbis of antiquity did not exactly recognize were places where bad things had happened. The Israelites had angered God in some way, and the Torah, rather than using the actual place names refers to them by hinting, for example, Vedizahav referring to the golden calf. I'm reminded of the philosopher Leo Strauss who suggested a lot of philosophy was spoken in coded language and this is perhaps an example in the Torah itself. It raises a question though, why would God want to use coded language or the human authors of the Torah to suggest to these places. Well, one of the things that we get here in Sefer Dvarim is a recap of everything that happened. This is uh, Moshe's swan song just before he's going to leave the people on the verge of entering the land and die. He sort of recaps everything. But what we see in this book is a different version and a different perspective of what we're um, what we what came before, and so that is it's very much focused on uh, a theology that requires obedience to God and obedience to God's commandments, and so maybe that's what this reminder is. Like, remember those times that you were disobedient, and we're really going to hammer home that point of this is what. Um, faith in this Israelite God requires. So we've made it through the wilderness and now we're about to enter the land. Now we really have to behave. So Professor Jeffrey Tigay in his commentary on Devarim notes, as Allison mentioned, the number of places where Devarim takes a different approach to events than we found earlier. Perhaps most noticeably is the account of the spies. Allison, when you spoke to the staff, a few weeks ago, you mentioned that you like to use this example of the spies, which appears here in the beginning of Devarim and also in Parshat Shalach Lecha and B'midbar as your introduction to the documentary hypothesis. Perhaps you could elaborate on that. So Parshat Shalach Lecha, which appears early in the summer, sometimes, not this summer, but sometimes we'll get both of these parshiot during camp, which I love when that happens because it's an opportunity for kids to look at two versions of a narrative story. But what we see here in Dvarim, this recap of 
sending 12 spies out to check out the land um, is very sparse in what we see in Shlachlacha in Numbers 13 and 14. We get a much more detailed, um, detailed account. We have heroes, Caleb and Joshua, really uh, rise to the occasion, motivate the people that it will be okay if they enter the land, but they're absent in, in this version in um, Dvarim. And so instead what we have here is again that focus on obedience to the law. In Shlachacha, it's uh, Moshe and God who suggest sending out the spies. Well here, the people are the ones who ask for spies to check out the land and it becomes sort of a sign that maybe they don't fully trust God and that they need some kind of concrete proof. They want to send out emissaries to check it out before they're willing to just follow. And so they sort of get lambasted for that of having a lack of faith, but this is a uh, revision of the same story that fits in with these kind of theological perspectives that we see in the entirety of Devarim. So we have a Bible scholar today and a rabbi. Sometimes we think of the Bible scholar as emphasizing the pshat, what the text means to the original author and the original audience, and the rabbi perhaps emphasizing what it means to us today. So what might this mean for us today? So uh, I would like to say that this piece I'm gonna share, I learned it from my son, who's in Solalim. When he had his bar mitzvah, it was Parshat Shlach Lecha, and he talked to, when it was his Devar Torah, uh, my son Sammy Reed Schwartz, when he spoke about this, he talked about how in Shlach Lecha, God tells Moshe to send out the spies. But just like Allison was saying, in this week's Parsha in Tvarim, the people come to Moshe to scout the land, and Moshe is the one who approves the idea. And the Ranban, Nachmanides, talks about this and sees it through the lens of leadership, that in Tvarim, Moshe is assuming responsibility for what took place, that the people came to him and he approved it. And in that sense, the fact that it was destined to be a failure and something that wasn't positive for the Jewish people because so many of the spies came back with a negative report, that's something that Moshe took on, that he was taking responsibility for the failure of sending out the spies, the failure of their report. And so what he was saying and what Ramban is saying is that when you are the leader, even if you aren't the one who did the thing that was wrong, you need to be the one to take responsibility, that ultimately responsibility is on your shoulders because you're the leader of the group. And that's what he sees Moshe doing in this case, taking responsibility for uh, the faults of the people. It's interesting that you say that because here in Devarim, Moshe suggests that the reason why he doesn't get into land is precisely because of the story of the spies, and he blames the people for that. The people misbehaved, and Moses pays the price. Is Moses in his swan song, this book of Devarim, is he actually a good leader or is he looking back with a lot of regret and the ultimate regret, of course, is that he will not be able to go into the land with the people? You know, I think it's a complicated situation. It's definitely true that Moses is um, accusing the people. He has this verse, uh, chapter one, verse 37, because of you, the Lord was incensed with me too. Because of you, God's angry with me. Um, and that could be read as, read as accusatory, that it's all your fault that I don't get to come into the land. 
but it, you can also read it as the lens that I was describing before of we're all in this together and I'm not going to be able to enter the land. So one of the things that has occurred to me is that in Bimidbar, perhaps Moses actually thought this was God telling him to send in the spies. Before the event, of course, we don't know how the results are going to work out. But now, 40 years later, he sees that it couldn't have been God. It had to have been the people because God would not have led the people astray. Only they could lead themselves astray. So where does that leave us? We're here. It's Parshat Tavarim. It's also Shabbat Chazon. We're ending the first month of camp, which is hard to believe. It has gone quite quickly, I think. And we have this curious calendrical phenomenon. Tisha B'Av, literally the ninth of Av, is this Shabbat, but the observance of the fast is postponed until Sunday. And because Tisha B'Av has been postponed until Sunday, the last day of the first session has been postponed until Monday. <laughs> this is not what we might say great calendar design to end the first month of camp on Tisha B'Av, but this year, of course, it cannot be avoided. We have a special Haftarah this week, Shabbat Chazon. Isaiah gets his opening chapter. We read before the congregation. And the word Chazon, of course, is a vision. It's his vision, but this is the last week of punishment. Of course, we don't think of camp as a, any week of punishment. But what are we to look forward to? How are we to make the bridge this year between our ending of camp on Tisha B'Av for one session and our opening of the second session on Tuesday, the I guess it would make it the 11th of Av, the 12th of Av, how do we make this shift? Well, I think that we see both uh, Isaiah as the Haftorah this week and sort of the last one of these Haftorah leading up to um, Tisha B'Av. It's uh, the Humash, I'm looking at it, calls it the third Haftorah of admonition. Um, but next week, after the celebration of Tisha B'Av, we also read from Isaiah, and that is a Haftorah of Consolation, in which this same prophet is the one who's sort of rebuking us, telling us we did these bad things, but he will also be next week the one who consoles us. And so we do see this sort of ups and downs, um, in camp we come together and there are a lot of kids I met today getting sad that they're leaving already on Monday um, some of them staying feeling sad but really that we're going to start a second month that we we can rebuild we have new Hanichim coming in on Tuesday and so that we can continue um, I think that it's uh, really interesting that the Haftarah has uh, the word Echa in it, which is the word we use for lamentations. And so there's definitely a link in this Haftarah um, to Tisha B'Av, which is coming up. And we also have the link in the Torah reading. Um, when Moses asked, how could I lead the people? Um, they've multiplied like the stars of the sky, and that's when, God, when Moses says, it's time to get leaders to assist me. I had a professor many years ago who disliked intensely the idea of singing Echa in the Torah reading in Echa Trap because the Torah is a special text for us and it's not one that should be um, sung in a mournful way even on Shabbat Chazon. 
all sorts of customs have arisen. The custom on Shabbat is to read the Haftarah, mostly in Echatrop. And perhaps it's something to think about. We live well into the 70th year, 71st year by now, of Israel's existence. How would we characterize our observance of Tisha B'Av? Here at camp, one of the things I've always liked is that camp is a place where there is a mood of Tisha B'Av throughout the camp. Of course, not everyone fasts, and on their side, they are not allowed to fast. But here, much more so than the few times I've actually been in a real community, outside of camp, on Tisha B'Av, you have a feeling that this is a different day. But do we need these different days with the modern state of Israel? I think that uh, it's a really interesting question. It's a conversation I just had this week with some Israelis who are here at camp, and they are proud Israelis and very happy that there's a state of Israel, and they do not observe Tisha B'Av when they are home in Israel. And they're asking themselves, now that they're here in the diaspora, is there a way that they should be marking it and uh, connecting with it um, since they're not going to be in Israel? I know that there are certainly those who argue that now that we have a country that's a Jewish state, uh, that Tisha B'Av has been abrogated. But of course, the rabbinic answer is that um, until we have a, a messianic time when there's no more war and hunger and no more of all the challenges that we face, um, we still are in a period of mourning and a period of yearning, yearning for the perfection of the world. And since we're not yet at that state, there are things that we can do, both practically, practical things to help uh, feed the hungry or house the homeless or whatever the actions might be, but also in our prayer life and in our spiritual life to um, try and bring us to a holier state as well. In some ways, I like to think of the destruction of the temple was this catastrophic moment um, in the history of the Jewish people, which even though we went into exile, then the second temple was destroyed, that it really becomes triumphant. And that the idea that a religion coming out of this temple-centered religion could continue and rebuild and find um, very different ways to continue to evolve, I really see as a triumph. I don't know if that answers, it doesn't answer your question of why do we still have this memory of this mournful day, but I do think that commemorating the historical event does give us an opportunity to reflect on um, how far we've come. Well, it's worthwhile reminding ourselves and our listeners that the long-standing tradition here at camp is for the Mishlachat, the Israeli delegation, to put on the concluding ceremony for Tisha B'Av, which combines the end of the mournful day with an element of celebration, recognizing that we do live in this new world with the modern state of Israel. So for each of you, it's your last Shabbat at camp. You've been here for the first month. So I wish you a restful Shabbat, an easy fast, and a meaningful fast on Tisha B'Av. And with that, we'll conclude this week's Parsha talk. For Dr. Allison Joseph and Rabbi Esther Reed, I am Rabbi Barry Chesler, and together we wish all of you in the Machanera Ma community Shabbat Shalom.